Let us pray. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Sing of His name. Give glory to His praise. Let all the earth worship You and praise You. Let the whole world praise Your name, O Most High, that we may know Your way upon the earth and Your salvation among all nations. Let the people thank You, O God. Let all the people give thanks to You, for You are good and gracious. Shine, shine, O new Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord has shone upon You. Exult and be glad, O Zion. O Father, we are radiant with joy in the resurrection of Your Son. For Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, that those in the graves may have new life. Grant us that life today. Renew that life within us. For eternal life is the gift of Your grace. Shower us with Your benefits, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as You have gathered us to receive Your treasures. For You are one God in three persons, full of grace, glory, truth, and righteousness, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, today we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has crushed the skull of the serpent and has brought us the victory. We gather today to rejoice in His victory, to rejoice because He has reversed the curse. We give You thanks and praise for His resurrection and all that it means for us. For we know our whole salvation is contained in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Because He has risen, our sins are forgiven. Because He has risen, we are justified. Because He has risen, we have new life. Because He has risen, resurrection life is now at work in us. Because He has risen, we have new powers and new gifts. Because He has risen, our glorious future in Your new creation is now secure. O God, our Father, fill us with joy and hope this day. Help us to believe the words You speak to us and help us to mean the words we say and sing to You. On this day, as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate the resurrection of Your Son, O Lord, make our hearts full of gladness. May we feast upon Your Word and at Your table. This we pray to You, our Father, through Your risen Son and in the power of the outpoured Spirit. Amen. Our sermon text this morning is taken from Revelation 2, which was already read. Uh, But let me read the first few verses of Revelation 1, uh, which I'll be commenting on during the sermon. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place. And And he sent it communicated by his angel to his bondservant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray for your blessing on us as we consider this portion of your word. We pray that we would be faithful to you, that we would cling close to you, that we would resist the temptations of the world, the safe places that seem to offer themselves, and find our safety only in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation is a collection of visions 
that are going to, of things that are going to take place shortly after John saw them. John tells us this at the beginning of the book, and he repeats it again at the end. In the verses that I've just read, the very first verse of Revelation, John tells us that he's writing things, things that are shortly to take place, and he reiterates that at the end of that, the verses, by saying the time is near. He says exactly the same thing at the end of the book. Jesus is coming quickly. These are things shortly to take place. Whatever it is that John sees, he sees things that are about to happen shortly after John received them sometime in the first century A.D. And this isn't an isolated emphasis in the New Testament. Over and over again, nearly every writer of the New Testament says something about some great event, some catastrophic event that is about to take place, that is near, that is about to happen. Paul says, salvation is nearer than when we believed. It's near. It is at hand. The God of peace is going to trample Satan under the feet of the Romans shortly. In Philippians, he says that the Lord is near. The writer to the Hebrews says that we should exhort one another daily since the day draws near. Some event is coming and we need to exhort one another to faithfulness in the light of that coming event. James says that the Lord is near and he says that the judge is standing right at the door. Peter says in his first epistle, the end of all things is at hand. And then he has to write a second epistle because when he says the things, end of all things is at hand, there's a delay before those things happen. But in his second epistle, he assures his readers that what he said in the first epistle is true and that things are about to take place. The end of all things is at hand. It is the last hour, John tells us in First John. It's the last hour, and we know it's the last hour because Antichrist has gone out into the world. That's a sign that it is the last hour. All of these writers are writing in the first century A.D., and they're describing something that's about to happen in their near future, which would be our distant past. And all of these writers of the New Testament say this because Jesus said it. Some of those who reiterate this heard Jesus say it. They heard the Olivet Discourse, that was a portion of which was our gospel reading just a few moments ago, where Jesus says that within the lifetime of this generation, all these things that he'd been talking about are going to be fulfilled. There's some catastrophic event, some cataclysm that's just over the horizon for those who are living in the first century. Now, we could interpret all these passages to mean something else than what they plainly mean. We could conclude that these writers were simply wrong, that they didn't know what they were talking about. Or we could say they knew what they were talking about, and what they predicted, in fact, happened within the generation of the apostles. What they predicted, in fact, happened shortly after John received the visions of Revelation, that they actually... Uh, predicted something that turned out to be the case. What is it that they were predicting? What were they expecting to happen? They call it different things. Paul says it's salvation. 
He says Satan is going to be trampled under our feet. James says that the judge is at the door, which means that some kind of judgment day is just over the horizon. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Jesus describes it most elaborately and vividly in the Olivet Discourse. The sun will be darkened. The moon will turn to blood. The stars will fall from the heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Before this generation passes, Jesus says, Paul says, James says, Peter says, John says, they all say, before this generation happens, the cosmos is going to collapse in on itself. The world is going to come to an end. Well, it doesn't seem like that's happened. This is in our distant past, and the cosmos seems to be just fine. The sun is still shining. The moon is still bright. The stars are still in the sky. The cosmos has not collapsed in on itself. In what sense did what they were expecting happen? We have to understand how Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament understood these things. Jesus, in that passage that I just quoted about the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, and so on, Jesus is basically quoting from Old Testament prophets. And those Old Testament prophets use that kind of language to describe the collapse not of the physical universe, but to describe the collapse of a human universe. We still use this kind of language. We speak of something being an earth-shattering event. We speak of Teotwaki, the end of the world as we know it. That's not another language, that's just an acronym. Pundits tell us that we are facing the end of the world as we know it. Some event is an epical event. It's the end of an old world. It's the beginning of a new world. Some people have talked that way about American politics since the 2016 election. It's an epical event. The earth shook under the election of President Donald Trump. We still use that kind of language. It's not unusual to us. And it's part of the tradition of prophetic, of prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And Jesus and the other disciples are talking about that. They're talking about Teotwaki, the end of the world as they knew it. And they expected that to happen within the generation of the apostles. They expected that world to collapse before they were all dead. Well, what was that world? What kind of world was it? What was going to happen shortly after John received the visions that he recorded in Revelation? The Bible teaches us that God has created many worlds... And many worlds have both begun and ended over the course of human history. History is not a seamless web. History is not a smooth surface. History has breaks in it. History is bumpy. History has seams where one set of things comes to an end and something new begins. And the Bible teaches us that throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, we're told that God makes worlds... And then when they get corrupted, God sends judgments that destroy worlds. Peter talks about the end of the world that then was. When did the world that then was end? Peter says the world that then was ended at the flood. And he's talking about the world that existed at the time of creation. The world that existed from the time of the fall of Adam until the flood. There was a world and that world came to an end with the great cataclysm of the flood. There was a world of Moses, Moses leading the people to worship at the tabernacle with the high priest as the chief among all of Israel. That world came to an end in the latter part of the time of the judges when the Philistines came and destroyed the tabernacle 
stole the ark and all of the priests of the house of Eli were killed on the same day. The world of Moses came to an end. That mosaic order came to an end. It was an earth-shattering event. It was an epical event. It was the end of the world as they knew it. The world of the monarchy came to an end. God called David from herding the sheep and placed him on the throne and gave him a dynasty that would be a perpetual dynasty. But in terms of an earthly dynasty, that dynasty ended with the exile and it never came back. You have kings in Israel after that, but they aren't Davidic kings. You have descendants of David, but they aren't kings. The Davidic monarchy was over at that point until Jesus fulfilled the promise to David and came and reestablished, resurrected the house of David. The house of the monarch, the world of the monarchy came to an end with the exile. That's the kind of event that John is predicting. That's the kind of event, event that Jesus was predicting. It's the kind of event that all of the apostles were expecting to happen. The world that they then knew was going to come to an end. And that world had a couple of main components to it. We heard in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah one of those important components of the world that the apostles were living in. At the end of Isaiah 44, the beginning of Isaiah 45, the prophet says that the Lord is going to call up, summon a king named Cyrus, and this king named Cyrus is going to be the servant of the Lord, the anointed of the Lord, He's going to restore Jerusalem. He's going to be the temple builder. When we finally find Cyrus' name in the historical books of the Bible, he's not a Davidic king. He's acting like a David or like a Solomon. He's building a temple. He's overseeing the building of a temple, but he's not even a Jew. He's a Persian emperor. And from that time on, until the time of Jesus and the apostles, Israel was under the control of and under the oversight of Gentile emperors. This is a brand new thing. This is a new world for the Jews. And the Jews, many of them, have trouble adjusting to it. Many of the Jews don't like submitting to a Gentile emperor, but that's what the Lord wanted them to do at that period of history. There's a succession of empires that oversee Israel that are supposed to function as protectors for Israel, but don't always do that. Instead, they often Uh, they often oppress the people, but they're supposed to be the protectors for Israel, and Israel is supposed to honor them. That Gentile rule is part of the world that they knew, the part of the world that Jesus knew. Jesus was not only surrounded by Jews, he was also could see Roman buildings in Jerusalem and elsewhere throughout the land of Judea. He knew Romans. He encountered Romans and others from the Gentile world. They lived in Judea. And, of course, Pontius Pilate was the governor who put Jesus to death. And there are other Roman governors that we find in the book of Acts. That's the world that they then knew. But at the center of the world that they knew was the second temple, the new temple, that was built after the exile and then refurbished and upgraded by Herod. That's the world that existed at the time of Jesus, a world for the Jews centered on the temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem as a city within the Roman Empire with the Roman emperors supposed to be the protectors and guardians and supporters for the people of God. That's the world that they knew. And that's the world that Jesus says at the beginning of Revelation is coming to an end. That's the world that John is seeing unraveling in his, in his uh, visions of the end. Revelation is written in order to prepare the churches 
for the end of the world as they knew it. Just the fact that they're given prophecies that the world as they know it is coming to an end helps them to prepare. If you think that the world is going to carry on just as it is forever, then you're going to live in a certain way. You're going to invest your energies and your money, your resources in a certain direction. You're going to bet bet on continuity. But if you're told by a prophet, this is not going to last very long. Don't get used to this. We've been living in this world for several centuries, but it's about to come to an end. It's going to come to an end before all the apostles are dead. It's going to come to an end shortly after John receives these visions. Then you begin to live different. You begin thinking differently about the future, and you have to begin thinking differently about how you conduct yourselves in the present. If the world as you know it is going to collapse, you need to be prepared not only for that collapse to survive it, but you need to be prepared for the world that's going to come after The world ends. That's what Revelation is for. It's giving the churches a clue to what's going to happen in uh, shortly after John receives these visions, and it's giving them instruction about how they're supposed to live in this in the interim, how they're supposed to prepare themselves for the end of the world as they know it. And in particular, that's the focus of the two chapters of messages that are sent to the angels of the churches of Asia. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are devoted to seven letters to seven different cities within Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And each of these is addressed to an angel of a church, and it gives this angel instructions, rebukes, and instructions about how the churches are supposed to live in the light of the end of the world as they know it. It's important to see the situation of the early Christians in order to understand the temptations that they'll face. The early Christians are in an in-between place, socially, politically, legally. Judaism was sometimes despised by the Romans, but at least Jews were legal. And the Romans regarded the Jews with some admiration because the Jews had a long heritage. But the Christians aren't quite Jews anymore. Many of them come out of a Jewish background. They still think of themselves as Jews, but now Jews who follow the Messiah, Jesus... But the Jews don't think, or many of the Jews don't think that they're Jews anymore. But they're not really Romans either. They don't really fit into Roman culture. In fact, they sometimes defy Roman culture as the Jews themselves had done. They're stuck in between these two great powers of their world. The two great powers of the world as they knew it. On the one hand, Jerusalem and the elites of Judaism. And on the other hand, the Roman Empire. How are they going to conduct themselves? Should they ally with Jerusalem in order to find safety? As long as they remain Jews or kind of closely tied to Judaism, then they'll be safe because at least they're legal. They won't be persecuted by the Romans. Or do they kind of tie themselves to the Roman Empire, renounce their Judaism and try to become Gentiles? They can't really do either and remain faithful. And that's the message, really, of these two chapters of Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2 and 3 is describing the temptations that the early Christians face as they face the end of the world as they know it, the temptation on the one hand to link up with Judaism and on the other hand to uh, go into the Gentile world and to compromise with the Gentile world. In Revelation 2 and 3, these two temptations are described on the one hand as porneia, as harlotry, and on the other hand as eating meat sacrificed to idols. Porneia, the word that's sometimes translated sexual immorality or immorality 
in your English Bibles. Porneia does have that connotation of sexual immorality, and Jesus, writing to these churches, is certainly wanting his disciples and his followers to avoid sexual immorality. But that's not what the word porneia means in the book of Revelation. Porneia is connected to the word porne, which means harlot. And Jerusalem in the book of Revelation is the harlot. Those who commit porneia are not necessarily committing sexual sin. They're committing a kind of spiritual adultery by shrinking back from following Jesus and trying to identify themselves with Jerusalem and with the Jews. By identifying themselves with the harlot, maybe they'll be safe. Maybe they'll be safe because at least Jerusalem is a recognized city. At least Judaism is a recognized religion. But Jesus says that's not a safe place. What looks like a politically shrewd compromise is in fact a dangerous place to be. Because the end of the world as they know it is on the horizon. And specifically, the end of Jerusalem as they know it is just over the horizon. If they ally with the harlot, then they'll suffer the harlot's fate. And the harlot's fate is utter destruction, as we find later in Revelation. So in these messages, Jesus tells the angels, warn the people of these churches not to commit porneia, not to ally themselves with Jews, not to ally themselves with official Judaism, thinking that they'll avoid persecution or avoid destruction. They won't. It's a more dangerous place to be. It looks safer, but it's not. Meat sacrifice to idols, I think, is a, that's the other great temptation that they would offer or indulge in meat sacrifice to idols. And I think that stands in for compromise in the other direction. Porneia is about compromise with the harlot Jerusalem. Eating meat sacrifice to idols is about compromise with Roman society. Idolatry was at the heart of Roman society. Later on, when Christians are, uh, are persecuted, later on, several centuries after John wrote, they were asked to put a pinch of incense on the altar in, uh, for the emperor. Worship the genius of the emperor. It's just a small thing. Just do your civic duty and show some homage to the emperor. But the Christians refused because they recognized that that would be a kind of idolatry. It would be sitting down at the table of demons. It would be allying with one who is opposed to Jesus Christ, another Lord sitting at another table. But already in the first century, Christians are being tempted to do that. And Jesus warns them, don't do that. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't participate in idolatrous practices and feasts because you think that might be a safe way to go. Don't compromise with Judaism. Don't compromise with the Greco-Roman world because neither of those directions is actually safe. Perhaps the most dangerous temptation, the most dangerous thing that the early Christians face is within the church rather than outside. And that's what the first few letters are focused on. It's not just about Jews pressuring Christians and persecuting Christians. That's happening. It's not just about Romans pressuring Christians or Christians being tempted to compromise with Romans. Romans will soon begin to persecute Christians, but that's not the only danger. The danger is within the church. The danger is that there are factions within the church that are encouraging porneia and encouraging offering meat and sharing meat with idols. That is, they're encouraging compromise with Judaism. They're encouraging compromise with Roman culture. The, the letters talk about these, I think, as the Nicolaitans, uh, those within the church who are a heretical group that are encouraging this kind 
of compromise. And Jesus' message to the churches is that you can't tolerate these people. That seems, again, a politically stupid move. You want to have strength in numbers, right? You want to have as many people in the church as possible so that at least the Roman Empire will have to, take, have to recognize you in some way. You don't want to start dividing up and being intolerant about people. You want to be inclusive and include all the people that you can within the church. That's the safe way to go. But Jesus says no. Throughout these letters, Jesus commends intolerance of these factions within the church. Intolerance of factions that encourage compromise with the world, that encourage a return to Judaism. Tolerance is not a virtue for Jesus. Intolerance is a virtue. You need to, uh, he's telling the angels that they need to set their lines straight and they need to expel those who are encouraging these kinds of idolatry. One last note on these letters. The letters are addressed to angels. And you don't see it in the English translations unless you have an older English translation. But most of the instructions and the rebukes are addressed in the singular to the angel. It's the angel who has lost his first love. It's not the whole church at Ephesus. It's the angel who has lost his first love. It's the angel who has to repent. It's the angel who is rebuked and corrected by Jesus. Whoever these angels are in these churches, they bear the responsibility for the future of the church. If the angel does not repent, then Jesus will come and remove the lampstand out of the church and remove the light out of the church. And if you have a church that's not shedding light on the world around, then what good is the church? It's the angel that's responsible for that. He's shouldering the burden of the church. But who are the angels? The word can mean either spiritual being, as we usually use the word, or it can refer to a human messenger. John the Baptist is called an angel in the New Testament. And I think here it's talking about human messengers to the churches. The angels of the churches are not spiritual beings who govern the church. They're not guardian angels of the churches. They are human beings who have the responsibility for correcting and guiding the church. Why would I say that? Well, if Jesus wanted to communicate with his spiritual angels, would he send letters from John? That seems like a circuitous route to go. How does John know where to send these letters? What's the post, where's the post office box for the angel, the spiritual being who governs the church at Ephesus? Plus, the messages themselves show that these angels have failed and that they need to repent. The Christian tradition says that there are fallen angels, Satan chief among them, but we don't believe that angels keep falling and we don't believe that angels, once fallen, can repent. The messages are directed at human beings Human beings are, who are leaders and messengers to the churches. These messages, in other words, are directed to uh, pastors and to overseers of churches. Perhaps there's some overseer who oversees all of the different home churches, house churches within Ephesus. The letter is addressed to him. He's being held responsible for the state of the church. He has to be intolerant of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites and other heretics in the church. He has to be sure that the church is not compromising. How, does the, how do the churches prepare for the end of the world as they know it? They prepare paradoxically, counterintuitively, by drawing sharp lines between themselves and the world around them. 
by being intolerant of those within, and especially by having pastors who carry out the instructions of Jesus. The pastors of the church are going to carry uh, the church through the crisis and into the new world that comes on the other side. Well, so far this has been largely a history lesson about the temptations and pressures that are on the first century, how they were supposed to deal with it. How does this apply or how is this relevant to us at all? Well, the God who makes and destroys worlds in the Bible is the same God who governs history now. And God still forms and destroys worlds. Worlds still come into being and then they unravel. And you can look at history since the cross and you can see that just as in the Bible there are seams in history, there are epochs in history, there are epochs in human history since the cross. Are we perhaps at one? Are we at a place where the end of uh, where we're facing the end of the world as we know it? More and more uh, observers of our world suggest that that's what we're facing. That the things that we have expected, the, th- the world that we have known at least since the middle of the 20th century, is unraveling in various ways, and we're entering an uncertain future, politically, economically, certainly in the church. The church has been unraveling for quite, quite some time. If we're facing the end of the world as we know it, we need to take heed, we need to pay attention to the lessons of Revelation. And we need to practice the same things that Revelation encourages on the first century Christians. That is to say, we need to resist the temptations of the world around us, the cultural temptations that surround us, that pressure us. We need to resist them even to the point of cost, even to the point of loss, even to the point of at least a kind of martyrdom. We have to resist the pressures from within the church that would get us to compromise with the various perversions of the world around us. We need to have pastors, either be pastors or pray for pastors, who will do what Jesus instructs the angels of the churches to do. Not be tolerant of evil. To guide their churches in faithfulness, not succumbing or buckling under the pressures of the world around them. If we want to uh, face the end of the world as we know it, faithfully, then we have to practice exactly what the early Christians practiced, looking ahead to our Lord to bring a new world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the challenge that it brings to us. We pray that you would give us eyes to discern what's happening in the world around us, that we would understand it rightly, we would understand it from the perspective of your word, and that we would be prepared for whatever you are bringing to us. We pray that you would keep us faithful, that you would keep us from compromising with the world around us, keep us from compromising with the false theologies and teachings that exist within your church. We pray for pastors who will lead and guide your church. And we pray that through this, Jesus Christ would be honored and he would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, through whom you have made known your truth and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, who dwells within us. We thank you for the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, for the means of grace 
for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. O Father, save, defend, and grow your church, purchased with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through the word, baptism, and the supper. Give her ruling elders who shepherd the flock faithfully and deacons who show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Fill her with mercy for the lost and compassion for the poor. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. Lord, we humbly intercede this day before you on behalf of all sorts and conditions of people that you would be pleased to make your ways known unto them, your salvation to all nations. Send forth the light of your truth into all the earth. Raise up, we pray, faithful servants to labor in the gospel at home and in distant lands. We especially pray for persecuted saints throughout the world, our brothers and sisters, who because of their loyalty to Christ suffer greatly. We ask that you would throw down the false gods, the idols who lead people and cultures astray, that you would protect and provide for your people in every nation, that your church might flourish, and that Christ might inherit the nations as his promised inheritance. Lord, this day we especially pray for our own needs as a church body and for the needs of our city. Lord, we come before you in all different circumstances today, each one with our own particular needs and burdens. Some of us come before you this day feeling guilty and we need to know your forgiveness. Some of us are ashamed and need your glory. Others of us are lonely and need fellowship. Some are fearful in need of courage. Others are anxious and in need of security. Some of us are weak and need strength. Still others are suffering and need your comfort. But Father, one thing is certain, we all need your grace in whatever form, and we ask that you would give us this grace. Indeed, Father, we know that you have given us your grace in different forms, giving to each of us different gifts, a unique set of gifts with which we can serve you and this body. Father, we pray today especially for the churches of our city, that believers throughout Birmingham might be united in faith and practice, that we might contend as one man for the gospel, that we would work together to transform our city of man more and more into the city of God. Father, today we especially lift up to you Christ Church in Branchville and pray for your blessings upon their new pastor, Justin Wallach, that he might have a faithful and fruitful and effective ministry to the saints there. Father, we pray that you would bless all different sorts of Christian ministries in our city, that your kingdom would advance in word and deed, that these organizations such as Urban Avenue and Well House and Grace House and Mission Birmingham would be blessed by you, that all their needs would be provided, that they would be effective in manifesting the gospel, manifesting the life of the kingdom through word and deed. We pray, too, that you would bless our civic leaders in the greater Birmingham area that mayors and councilmen and judges might exercise their power in wisdom and virtue. We pray that you would provide jobs and necessities for the poor, that the compassion of your people might overflow into deeds of kindness, to care for the needs of the poor of our city. We pray that you would stop violence and 
and, and the, the bloodshed of the innocent in our city. We pray that you would protect and guide all policemen and firefighters and first responders as they seek to serve the common good of our city. We pray that you would be with those in prison and those who minister to the imprisoned in our city. Father, we pray that our city may flourish with justice and prosperity, with freedom and faithfulness. Father, we pray, too, for those among us who are grieving the loss of a loved one. We especially pray for Ashton Motes and her family and Maura Peterson and her family. We pray that you would be with those who hurt and suffer, granting them every consolation and comfort of the gospel, and that you would overrule all our present sufferings to our ultimate good in Christ Jesus. Father, we especially ask you to heal Kevin Fox's father. Father, we thank you for the ongoing healing of Rachel Winstead's mother. And Father, we pray for all others uh, that we know in this body and beyond who are suffering or mind and body, who we lift up before you now in our hearts. Father, we also pray for expectant mothers in our congregation, Hannah Bourgeois, Charity Hanby. Father, we pray for those who desire to have children, uh, especially Donald and Rosemary Beck. Father, we know that you are a faithful father, that you see our needs, and you delight to provide for us, and so we ask that you would do so. All these things we have petitioned you for, and whatever else you see that we need, grant to us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again, and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age, from eternity to all eternity. And hear us now, Father, as we are bold to pray in the words Christ Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.